Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always, ladies and gentlemen, not since the time of Conan the Barbarian and Destroyer have we seen a force so disruptive. This is the Captain. Well, I did bring my sword, so watch what you say. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are drinking Peroni by Macro Brewery in beautiful Roma, Italy, garage grade three and a half bottle caps out of five. Peroni Original is brewed using not only the best ingredients, but the same recipe since 1846. And my favorite word to describe Peroni is crisp. This is a crisp beer. You know how at the bottom of the refrigerator there's that little drawer that says crisper on it? Well, you won't have to put your Peroni bottles in there because it comes crisp straight from the brewery. Don't you tell me what to do with my damn bottles. (laughs) And this beer is brought to us by some crispy garage critters. First up, we have Esther and Spencer from Chicago who says they are frequent visitors to our great state of Ohio listening to True Crime Garage all the way. And a big cheers to Pat from the Boston area. We also have Sarah Lou from Portland, Oregon. She asked, why don't you guys have a glass of wine in the garage? My answer would be, well, I don't know, sir. You know, and today might have been a good opportunity seeing how we're flying the old garage ship to Italy. So maybe that's something we'll have to keep in mind regardless. Cheers to you. Well, my answer would be I I sometimes have a little bit of a problem with drinking wine. I, I drink too much of it. Next, we have Rebecca from, well, let's see if I can nail this on the first attempt, Captain. Mississauga, <laughs> Ontario, Canada. So if I got it wrong, I apologize to all the good people of Mississauga, including <laughs> Rebecca. That that doesn't even sound right. Next, back in the States, we say hi to Vanessa from Greenville, Tennessee. Vanessa says she loves the show. The captain is hilarious. So uh, an old tip of the old cap to the captain. I think she meant hilarious looking. And last but not least, we have Shannon from Fisher, Illinois. So thanks to everybody for filling up the fridge. And if you want to tip the old cap to the captain next week, Go to TrueCrimeGarage.com and click on the donate button. And for everything True Crime Garage, check out TrueCrimeGarage.com. Check out the store page. We have some t-shirts, 
Uh, I got some little goodies for everybody that orders a t-shirt in the next week or so. I'm going to be tossing in these free goodies in the bag. And don't forget, if you want to hear more of The Garage, we have our old episodes and our bonus episodes on the store page and at the iTunes store. That's enough of the business. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. You should have told everybody to grab their sword. Florence is the capital city of the region of Tuscany. Florence was the center of trade and finance during the Middle Ages and was considered one of the wealthiest cities of that era. It is considered to be the birthplace of the Renaissance. Today it is a city known for its architecture, famous monuments, and Renaissance art. Each year, millions of tourists flock to the area. Florence is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. But amongst all of this culture and beauty lies a stain. Gruesome and ugly stain that has permanently left its mark on Florence and scarred the city forever. Because in the second half of the 20th century, something awoke a monster that was sleeping in the hills outside of the great city. For nearly 20 years, the monster crept in the dark under a moonless sky, ambushing its prey. Over a dozen people were murdered while making love in parked cars in the hills of Florence. This monster has not only ended many lives, but destroyed families and terrified the hundreds of thousands that live in the area. It does not take supernatural insight into the dark side of the human soul to see absolute evil that not only lies within but oozes from the monster. Over 100,000 men have been investigated. Over a dozen men have been arrested and countless lives have been ruined by false accusations. There have been suicides, exhumations, poisonings, body parts sent in the mail, and seances in graveyards. It quickly became clear to the entire country that Florence now had its very own serial killer. A killer unique to the area, but disturbingly familiar to us in the United States. The monster's murderous crimes are hauntingly similar to that of the Son of Sam, the Phantom Killer of Texarkana, and the Zodiac. But unlike his evil American brothers, no one would survive 
the monster of Florence. For us, our story starts on Saturday, September 14th, 1974, just about 40 kilometers outside of Florence. A young man, 19 years old, named Pasquale, who worked at a local bar, spent that evening with his lovely young girlfriend, Stefania, who is only 18 years old. After a few hours at one of their favorite spots, a local disco club, the two hopped in Pasquale's small car, a blue Fiat 127, and drove off into the night. The young man knew he had to have his sweetheart home at a reasonable hour, but before dropping her off, the two were looking for a little privacy. So they went and parked the car in a secluded area near a lake. Sometime just before 11.45 p.m., a dark figure approached the vehicle. There was no moon that night, so it was particularly dark out. The dark figure got very close to the car's driver's side door. The couple likely did not see this as they were quite busy. Suddenly, five gunshots broke the night's silence. Pasquale was hit all five times at a close range, once in the heart and four times in the body. Then, four more gunshots, all hitting Stefania, none in vital parts of her body. The dark figure, the monster, walks around to the passenger side door, pulls the door open and grabs Stefania and pulls her out of the car. The monster throws her to the ground just behind the car near the tailpipe. The monster pulls out a knife and lunges toward the very badly injured girl. And with this very sharp knife, he stabs her 96 times. The monster then violated the woman's corpse after he grabbed the necklace from around Stefania's neck and yanked it off of her. The monster picks up Stefania's purse and dumps the contents on the ground. Before leaving, he walks over to Pasquale, who has by now died from the gunshot wounds. The monster stabs Pasquale five times. Their bodies were discovered the next day by a farmer. This is True Crime Garage, and this is The Monster of Florence. The Monster of Florence, Captain, one of a, a very famous case worldwide. And mm-hmm. the first double homicide that we're going to discuss is the one that took place in 1974, described right there by our wonderful narrator. I don't know who that guy is. He's very, <laughs> very talented. You should see him. He was he was reading that, telling mm-hmm. that story and playing the cello at the same time. Blew my mind. Yeah. Blindfolded. Blindfolded. Uh, the thing here is, Captain, so let's go through that crime. Uh, let's talk about what evidence may have been found and if there were any leads in that double homicide of the two young people that were shot that night in their car. 
Now, a little bit of background on the two young people. Well, they they had a long-term relationship. This was not a one-night fling. I know they were very young. Pasquale was only 19 and Stefania was 18 at the time. But they were high school sweethearts. They had been together for some time and they were out enjoying the evening together. And then they're gunned down in their vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the autopsy goes and the findings of that, you know, we already said that Pasquale, he, he was already dead when he was stabbed. He was shot first. And then for some reason, the killer went back to him and stabbed him five times. As for Stefania, she was shot four times and then stabbed. There's, there's two different uh, arguments here. One being that she was stabbed 96 times. The other that she was stabbed 97 times. Who knows? I mean, that's a lot of stab wounds. I don't know if you're going to be able to determine if exactly how many it was. Right. Regardless, um, it was determined that the first three times that she was stabbed is what actually killed her. And it is believed by the investigators that the remaining 93 or 94 stab wounds were made post-mortem. And most of these stab wounds focused on the female areas of the body, a lot of them being what people would typically dub superficial stab wounds. Yeah, there's going to be some very gruesome stuff in this episode. Just a warning there. Well, I'm glad that you dropped that warning because uh, another very strange thing about this crime uh, the killer had placed a vine shoot inside the female victim. Placed a what? A vine shoot, uh, like a some kind of vegetation that would have been growing in the area. Okay. Um, the authorities did find, as far as evidence goes, they did find shell casings at the crime scene. All of these came from bullets that were used in a Beretta handgun. They were twenty-two caliber long rifle bullets. And both the ammo and the gun are commonly used uh, guns or commonly owned guns in this area. Mm -hmm. And as we mentioned, Stefania's necklace, uh, it must have been stolen. Um, She, it was reporting that she was wearing it that night Mm -hmm. and it was not found at the crime scene. Uh, The investigators found Stefania's bra and purse about 200 meters from the murder scene. Remember we had said that the killer had taken her purse and dumped the contents of it onto the ground. Now, more than one witness driving in that area that night reported hearing gunshots around 11.45 p.m. And judging by reports of what time the couple left the disco, the investigators believe that the couple were parked at the location for about an hour or so before the shooting took place. As for leads, well, there were... There were a few, but as you will see, there is not much detailed information for investigators to work with here. So, yes, uh, two of Stefania's friends came forward in the investigation. One says that on the day that the couple was killed, Stefania told a friend that she had a strange encounter with a man that had scared her. Mm -hmm. Now, Stefania failed or did not give any further detail about the man, you know, didn't mention if she knew his name, but what what was the situation? Didn't give a description of the man or didn't even say what had terrified her about this situation. So she, it was just basically, I met this guy. He freaked me out. And yeah. That was it. Or I was, I was, I was here and this happened. It was a very mm-hmm. brief thing, but it was enough for after she was killed for her friend to come forward and say, by the way, she happened to mention this casually to me the day that she was killed. Mm -hmm. Okay. The next lead 
again comes from a friend of Stefania's, a, a different friend, says that the couple had been in somewhat of a secluded area just days earlier. Uh, Pasquale was giving Stefania a driving lesson. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they said that a man had followed them. They believed that a man had followed them to the location and was watching them during the course of this uh, so-called driving lesson. Um, the thing here is, though, this, again, it's one of those things that, you know, when, when you are talking to your friends and when you're talking to your family and something weird happens to you that day, it might only be just a weird little thing that happens, right? But then if when a crime like this takes place just days later, all of a sudden it's a big thing that you're wondering, well, why didn't I nudge that person further? Why didn't I say... What kind of car did you see? Right, right. What color was the vehicle? What did the man look like? Mm-hmm. Was it somebody you knew? You know, uh, these are things that happen to us in our daily lives, and we, you know, kind of casually tell our friends and family about it. The other lead, um, this came from several people, came from a, a bunch of young couples that would park in the same area where the couple was killed. These couples told investigators that they had often seen men watching them, uh, voyeurs observing the couples as they were being romantic in their vehicles. (laughs) A bunch of peeping Toms is what you're saying. Thank thank you, Captain. Uh, Here's what I think is funny about this. Yeah, we we knew this guy was watching, and it didn't stop you? (laughs) Um, Well, the thing here that that was that was obvious to me very quickly in this case that, that was foreign to me um, because not being, you know, from the area or even familiar with it, I didn't realize that there's a whole community of this going on in Italy. And if anybody in Italy is listening to the show and they're thinking that I'm speaking out of turn, I'm only going off of all of the information that I've consumed. So what are you saying? I mean, you say this community, what I've been told Okay, from everything that I've read and found and watched is mm-hmm. that there's there's two things going on here um, that that during the times of these crimes mm-hmm. uh, that a lot of young people would would remain living with their parents until they went off and got married. Mm-hmm. So these people that are in long term relationships or, or in love with somebody and they want time alone with this person, it's very common that they would spend an evening or a couple of hours in 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 a vehicle parked somewhere. Well, this is pretty common in the States as well, right? Well, yeah, but I, but I got the vibe that it was, it's happening a lot, you know, like, like overwhelmingly, uh, can compared to how it's happening here. You are just, you're going to have to finish the show. I'm going to have to get my plane ticket. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, now you sound like one of the peeping Toms. So I'm not, no, who said I wanted to be the one of the peeping Toms. I was going to get my own car and go out there. Have rent, some fun. Rent a big car with some leg room. Yeah. Uh, the thing here is, Captain, though, what this has what this has inspired, let's say, is now you have a bunch of men that go out in the evening and they watch these young couples. You know, they Sickos. kind of yeah, they kind of hide in the bushes, hide in the woods, flicky, and, flicky, and watch these young couples. Um, I've even heard that you know, you know, as more recently, uh, that some people have you know, brought technology into this quote unquote hobby. Mm-hmm. Now amongst these peeping Toms or voyeurs, they call each other Indians. I guess that's some kind of term that they've come up with. I've seen it used in many reports regarding these crimes. However, I think it's a, it's a, 
degrading the Indian population yeah. by using that name. The Pilgrims never talked about the Indians <laughs> like being peeping toms. There were no complaints of, of yeah. uh, being watched from a <laughs> from chief peeping tom. So we won't call them that. We'll just call them peeping toms. We'll call them watchers. Uh, but regardless, when we speak of these people, <laughs> we'll you'll call them watchers. You'll know who we are talking about or losers. Well, according to uh, newspaper reports, uh, one of the mysteries surrounding the murders that investigators thought would really help point them toward the perpetrator of this crime is that the investigators wanted to know this a simple answer to a complicated question, in my opinion. Okay. Was the killer waiting for just any couple to arrive in this area, or was the killer waiting for this specific couple to arrive, or did the killer just happen to come across them and kill them? I think there needs to be more questions there. I think you're right. I think the other question would be you know, what I think is more likely is, you know, was this individual, was this peeping Tom? And he's not at this point that the killer we don't know is a peeping Tom. Right. But was he just, you know, was he stalking them? Was he following them? Because the, the idea that, yeah, if look, if this is happening and a bunch of, points and you got you know make out lane over here and make out look at you know make out mountain over here you can just sit there all night if you want but that works i think as far as a peeping tom i'm not a professional um but i'm just saying that's what i think a peeping tom would do just let's go to the area that people are making out or fornicating and let's hang out there to me as far as the murders concerned it'd be I followed these people. I went to the disco with them. They left the disco. I followed them out here. I think you bring up a good point because we see at least two of her friends coming forward stating that there was something that had taken place in the days leading up to the murder where Stefania thought something weird was going on, being followed, being watched, yeah. or a strange encounter with some some weird dude. Um, and I think you're right, Captain. I think that they, they didn't ask enough questions as well. And and one question I have regarding this particular crime would be why why would the killer stab the boy after he was dead? I mean, he had mm-hmm. shot him 5 times by that point and then he goes back and stabs him another 5 times. I I don't know why, but my po- my question, well, possibly just adrenaline, right? It, you're exactly right. Could be adrenaline, but I also wondered if he wanted to make sure that the the boy was dead. Right. That, that he had some concern that he left him alive. Now, why would he be concerned? Well, one, his mission was to go out obviously and kill these two young people. But two, was he was he worried that he could be identified if he left anybody alive? Did did they happen to know him? Um, had they seen him before or was yeah. there something about him that would give himself away as far as his identity? Well, then, I mean, at the end of the day, if you leave somebody alive, there's always a possibility that they're able to identify you later. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is the overkill with the female victim. Uh, he degrades her and, and stabs her over 90 times. Mm-hmm. That usually indicates some type of uh, personal relationship or some kind of uh, previous relationship with the victim. Yeah, I, I see that, but I also see that, you know, that that victim could be a symbol for something mm-hmm. greater, you know, where it's like maybe just a hatred towards women. 
And, and so, you know, that victim is, it's not so much that he hates that victim. It's, she's the symbol for every female that he's ever hated or that has ever tormented him or didn't give him enough attention or maybe it's mom issues. Well, and to me, the other thing here, captain is what, what I think is absolutely terrifying is that rather than him being concerned, rather than the killer or killers being concerned that they might be observed by somebody else or that another couple might pull up in a vehicle or they could have been spotted by somebody Mm -hmm. rather than being concerned about that. The killers seem to be more focused and concerned about actually finishing the job about. He had an idea of what he wanted to go out and do. It's, it's almost ritualistic in a way. And he was going to continue and finish this job no matter what he was going to take his time, do what he felt he had to do before leaving the area. But he's also, again, if he is concerned about, you know, somebody coming up on lover's lane or something, this guy has a knife and he has a gun, mm-hmm. you know? So what is he worried about? The other strange thing here, captain, and this- I, wait, hold on. I was just going to say, I don't think a murderer, you know, after he's done murdering somebody is scared that he's going to be murdered. You know well, I, mean? I meant spotted that he would be identified or, or there would be witnesses to something. Well, yeah. And that's kind of hard to know just cause we don't know the exact layout of where they're at. Like how open was it? Was there a bunch of, was it a big field? Was it, you know, was there some trees blocking the entrance? Who knows? One thing I also wondered about, and this is a detail that's not widely reported, but later Stefania's grave was vandalized and I don't have details on how it was vandalized, just that it was it was vandalized. Now, that makes you wonder and question, was this a coincidence? Does this or does this further point to that the killer may have known her and had had hatreds toward her or right. coincidence because sometimes stupid people just do bad, dumb things and it could be completely unrelated to the crime? Yeah, or it could be something where somebody read something in the paper and they're just a sicko mm-hmm. and they're like, let's let's deface if we just face her grave, then then people are going to be talking about this. We'll start some rumors. Well, the investigators continue to look for the killer or killers of the young couple, despite the few leads that they have to go on. Now, just under seven years later, on Saturday, June 6, 1981, this is just about 15 kilometers outside of Florence. A couple who had been together for quite some time went out for ice cream. This is 30-year-old Giovanni and his girlfriend, Carmela, who is just 21 at the time. Mm-hmm. They went out for, you know, it's it's June, right? So it's nice and warm out. And even though it's late at night, let's go out and get some ice cream. It's about 10 o'clock that night. After they go out, uh, they decide that they're going to go and park at a place that is, again, frequented by other couples looking for privacy, but also a location that is frequented by these peeping toms or voyeurs. Mm-hmm. So while they are parked there, they they are attacked. Uh, investigators have reason to believe the man was attacked first. Giovanni was shot three times. Once in the heart, once in the lung, and then in the head. Carmelo was shot five times. One of these shots was at point-blank range to the chest. This was the death blow. After she is shot, the monster pulls Carmela from the vehicle and over to an embankment about 12 meters away. Then he cuts her jeans all the way up 
to the belt. I couldn't find where a report of where this cut started at what location, you know, Mm -hmm. low on the jeans. I'm guessing quite low on the jeans because, you know, maybe even the bottom of the pant leg or legs, because for what was about to take place, the jeans would have had to have been basically removed. Uh, I'm going to say this as politely as I can without leaving anything to question, but the killer removed the pubic area of the female victim. This was done at the previous crime as well. Um, Again, the killer opens up the purse and scatters the contents on the ground. And just like at the first crime scene, the monster stabs the male victim post-mortem. So there's a lot of evidence that maybe it's the same killer or possibly a copycat killer. I mean, we we're talking about the first crime happening in 74. Mm-hmm. And now this crime is taking place in 1981. There's a lot more to get into. And we'll get right back to this after this quick beer break. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer 
or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right. Cheers, mates. Cheers, everybody, for filling up the fridge and the, the beer fund. Cheers to you. The uh, the bodies were found by a policeman out walking with his son uh, the following day. Uh, at this time, the male victim was still in the car, and uh, the driver's side door window was shattered. Mm-hmm. When investigators found Carmela, she was, as we said, at an embankment. Now, this was about 12 meters away from the vehicle. So the first question that comes to mind here, Captain, is, you know, would you say that the perpetrator appears to be relatively strong or at the very least in good physical condition? 12 meters away from the vehicle would be about 39 feet. 
Now, I, I don't know any of the, uh, you know, height or weight of this woman, of Carmela. However, I've seen pictures of her. She appears to be of ha- average height and weight, right. but that still seems 39 feet seems like a considerable distance to carry somebody that probably weighs 100 to 115 pounds. Right, but he, you know, maybe not carry. He might have dragged. Well, that that was one thing that I was curious about because um, you know there were there were no drag marks found on the ground or the body according to the evidence that I reviewed. I yeah, was, but again, it's it's all about terrain. I mean, if if we're talking about a rocky area, then then you're going to see some of that on the body. But if we're talking about a you know grassy the, the grassy knoll, mm-hmm. right? You're not going to see you know the marks on her body. You know, you could drag somebody through. The grass and it's not gonna you know mess up the body and none of the evidence uh pointed towards anything as as far as mud or dirt on the hands and knees or the bottom of her feet or shoes uh but i guess that information is not necessary because you know they're, they're stating that she died from that point blank gunshot to the chest and died in the car then obviously she didn't walk or crawl 39 feet away well right and i think as far as the detectives go yeah is is this murderer is he does he have some strength? Is he able to pick her up, put her on the shoulder, carry carry her wherever he needs to, right? Mm-hmm. Or is he dragging the body? Or is there two uh, suspects? Right. So right. That, that'd be the other question. I'm not suggesting that this man, if it is a single perpetrator, I'm not suggesting that he needs to be a hulking person, you know, a giant man. Mm-hmm. I'm just simply a saying juice head. you could, you could probably, if it's a sole perpetrator, you could probably rule out a, a 79 year old man or a, or a very small man that maybe only weighs 110 pounds. Um, the thing here though, remember we discussed in the first crime, well, it could uh, be a very strong, small man built like a fire plug. <laughs> uh, the, in the first crime, the necklace was stolen from the female victim in this crime, Carmela's necklace was found at the scene. However, it had been laid across her mouth. So her mouth is open, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was, I'm guessing that the necklace would have been broken, you know, yanked off of her neck rather than someone taking the time to unclasp it. Uh, but it was laid so it would be going across her mouth or, or through her teeth, if you want to say that, mm-hmm. uh, almost creating some kind of, uh, smile with the, with the necklace there. Uh, both victims were stabbed in the abdomen as well. So I mean, there's again, uh, you know, I know we're I know there's somebody out there right now going, it's a true crime show. You don't need to tell people. Now look, I'm trying to this is too much for you. Try a different episode. Um, so we have a lot of mutilation as far as the pubic area goes, but above that and the lower abdomen, there's a lot of stab wounds as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that happened on both victims. Yeah. The, so so th- what's the motive of that? that? That That is my question. You know, it again, it almost seems with the removal, uh, it almost seems like that's some kind of ritualistic uh, right. aspect to these crimes. The investigators, it's been widely reported in this particular crime that the investigators believe that the couple saw or detected the presence of the monster before they were attacked. Mm -hmm. They have reason or more likely, they probably have evidence to believe that the couple was trying to flee when they were attacked. With a car? Trying to flee with a car? Or... Well, I think... 
uh, okay, so I have a, I have somewhat of a, a description of the state that the bodies were found in. Okay, mm-hmm. the um, the male victim, his his pants were not all the way on. Okay, so it what what the the investigators believe is that he was compromised because he was not dressed, but he was trying to get dressed uh, and flee uh, the scene. You know, that maybe mm-hmm. maybe he was trying to get dressed and then trying to start the car um, other than the other than him pulling up his pants um, that I don't know what other evidence they had to suggest this to them other than it's been reported as such. I'm sh- I'm guessing that they had more evidence to point towards this. Maybe they found the key in the ignition. Maybe right. they, you know the key was in his hand, you know, there's, there's anything, there's these little bits and fragments and pieces that we will, we may never know, but it's always been reported that they believe that they, they had detected or heard or seen somebody approaching the car. Well, that would make me wonder. Mm-hmm. Okay. A couple things. When somebody is going to go park with their significant other, normally, like I said, you, you park in an area and there's some kind of, um, you know, blockade at the entrance. You know, like maybe some trees or something. So, but you're going to park far enough away from the entrance that when you see, you know, headlights, mm-hmm. then it kind of gives you a warning. Okay. okay. Got to put my Jimmy away. Right. Mm-hmm. So what I'm wondering about this, this attack is, did they park far enough away and did they have mm-hmm. some headlights come in and then they go, okay, we got to get decent. You know, mm-hmm. we don't know if this is a cop or not. That that to me seems more likely than, and you know, this individual just rolling up on them and shining a flashlight, right? You know, because if he's trying, you know, w- what sense would it make if he was parked somewhere else or just got there by foot and started approaching the vehicle with the light flashing towards them? Mm-hmm. You know, unless he wanted to create more fear. Maybe you wanted to see that fear, but so then I'm now I'm wondering, do we have other, uh, vehicle, you know, tire tread or what? Well, we, we don't have any of that. We don't have any evidence of that here. And, but you bring up a good question because with the first murder scene, the brawl of the female victim in the purse are found 200 meters away. Right. From so, the vehicle. So that would suggest that this individual is walking. It, that that was my first initial thought. And then I re- recalled some some information that we gathered from uh, Theodore Bundy, who when he talked about his crimes. Just and call him Ted. When, when Ted would leave the, the crime scene, the murder scene where he was dumping a body and he would take a lot of the females um, identification and any mm-hmm. of their personal items with him. And he said, you know, they, they thought he was some kind of mastermind of going undetected. How did you go so undetected for so many years? What did you do with their stuff? Did you burn it? Did you bury it? And he goes, no, I just simply drove away from the crime scene, from the murder scene. And I would randomly toss an item out the car window as right. I was driving. Once I got far enough away. I just randomly toss these things out. They have a way of disappearing. Now he had the benefit 
Bundy had the benefit of the bodies not being found for a considerable amount of time. Mm -hmm. Here we see two crime scenes where the bodies are found the very next day, almost as if somebody takes little to no precaution, does not mind them being found. And again, we talk about the mutilation to the female victim. It's almost that somebody, not only does he have this ritual, but he also has uh, a need to, to shock and disturb whoever's going to find or see these bodies mm-hmm. because he leaves the victim, the female victim, outside of the vehicle. Yeah. Yeah, or was she outside of the vehicle when she, he approached them? Were they both outside of the vehicle? Well, they can you determine know, that she was killed inside the car. Based off of blood splatter? Is that Blood and bullets and all that 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 type of evidence. They can mm-hmm. determine that she was killed inside the vehicle and then the first and then removed in right. same, same scenario in the first crime and the, in the first and, and what we have here, the key piece of evidence to co- really connect these, you know, is this a copycat or the same person is the, the, the shell casings are very similar mm-hmm. and, and both of these murders. Yeah. And we couldn't tell you the story of the monster of Florence without discussing a, a fine gentleman. Uh, and captain, I like this guy a lot. This is Mario Spezzi. Uh, Mario worked for one of the area's more prominent newspaper publications. He spent, he was sent to this crime scene the day after the murder, when the bodies were found, uh, to cover the story. Okay. And here is a brief version of Mario's account of what he saw when he arrived on the scene that day. He says the boy seemed to be sleeping in the driver's seat, his head leaning on the window, only a little black mark on his temple and the car window shattered by a bullet, indicating that it was a crime scene. The girl's body lay some feet behind the car at the foot of a little embankment amid scattered wildflowers. Mm -hmm. She had also been shot and was on her back, naked except for a gold chain which had fallen between her lips. Now, according to Mario, everything at the scene was unnaturally composed. Um immobile. There were no signs of struggle or confusion. And mm-hmm. I found this I found this to be very interesting because you know when we spoke with prosecutor Juan Martinez who who prosecuted Jody Arias back in uh, that was episode 23 of of True Crime Garage available in the iTunes store shameless plug there. Um <laughs> but when we spoke with Juan Martinez remember he said that in his jurisdiction what they do as prosecutors is when there's a murder scene or they, they whoever the prosecutor that gets that case mm-hmm. is sent to the crime scene relatively quickly after the discovery of, of the victim. And he said that one thing, you know, so this guy's been to dozens and dozens of murder scenes as well as Mar- Mario Spezzi, who's covering these murders and crimes in Italy. Mm-hmm. And both of them have the same thing. They're saying that when we show up to these murder scenes, one thing that is obvious to us is an obvious sign of a violent struggle. You know, that there's usually blood smears. There's furniture that's knocked over. There's things that are broken. There's things scattered on the floor. Uh, It's an obvious sign of a violent struggle. Mm -hmm. Where Spezzi is saying the thing that was different for him about this crime, and he knew immediately that this was going to be different from anything that he's ever investigated before or reported on before was that when he arrives at this crime scene, it's, it's composed. It, there is no sign of violent struggle. This is simply somebody came upon these people and attacked them and killed them very quickly and precisely. 
Well, and I, I can't remember every detail because it seems so long ago, but, uh, you know, the first case we ever covered in the garage, and I, I do remember sweating a lot. <laughs> I do remember sweating a lot. And I also remember uh, that's when you you didn't understand the idea that you had to talk into the mic, so you just kind of walk around the garage. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be a walking show. <laughs> You've confined me to a chair. Yeah, you need to. Well, pe- people need to be able to hear you. Um, so, but in that case, we covered the Phantom Killer. Mm-hmm. And there was, there were several attacks, which is, that's kind of what we got going on here. But there, some of those attacks, there was a struggle and some there weren't. Right. So, so right now we have two, two attacks, no sign of struggle, pretty much on either one. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that's why I don't, I don't put any weight into the investigator saying that they saw the attacker. Therefore, they're trying to get away. Right. Like I, I don't put a lot of weight in there because, to me, we, we also have a shattered driver's side window. Mm-hmm. So to me, this guy is stalking from a distance right approaching them and you know depending on how how bright it is outside or how much his eyes are able to adapt to the darkness uh, maybe there is a light on in the car who knows right um or maybe the car is still running then i think this individual is just stalking from a distance coming up and that first shot is through that window and hitting the male and this attack. And I think you're right here, Captain. I think he, the killer got the jump on them, let's say, because yeah, yeah. because all of these shots hit a target. They weren't, you know, immediate death shots, but mm-hmm. they all hit a target. So either this guy's a super, you know, super marksman, or he's very close to the vehicle, very close to these victims when he's shooting at them. Yeah, and well, we have evidence that some of the the some of the wounds are, you know, um, what's it called? Uh, point blank range. Correct. Right. So, so, so yeah, I would assume that you have some of those, and so maybe these other. And now this is eighty eighty one, so maybe the forensics isn't up to par with what we have now. So they might not be able to tell you how exactly far away he was. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm guessing this guy wasn't any more than five feet away. Right. And possibly right up on the window. Right. Even. And you pointed out some obvious signs of, of uh, links, you know, of, of similarities into the previous crime. A couple of other things that we haven't mentioned yet, though, you know, the first crime takes place in the month of uh, September, this one in the month of June. So both warmer months. Mm -hmm. Um, They also take place on a Saturday night as well as uh, moonless nights. Uh, so these would be nights that would be particularly dark out, mm-hmm. uh, both on a both <laughs> on a weekend. What it means there, um, and in the warmer months. Now Mario Spezzi, uh, as I said, is a seasoned and might I add a very talented investigative journalist. Uh, he is covering the case, mm-hmm. and his article covering the crime. Well, it became a newspaper sensation. Uh, and eventually he revealed that a serial killer was stalking the countryside of Florence. The newspaper pointed to something that the police had overlooked. This killing, this double homicide, was similar to the double homicide that had taken place in the hills north of Florence back in 1974. That's the first crime we discussed. Right. The, um, the, this prompted the police to compare the shells 
the bullet casings recovered from both crime scenes. They discovered that the bullets had been fired, in fact, by the same gun. Yes, it was a 22 caliber Beretta firing Winchester H series with a copper jacket, which according to the ballistics experts, not only came from the same gun, but very likely came from the same box of 50 bullets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the gun, th- this gun had a defect. Uh, th- it had a defective firing pin that left an unmistakable mark on the rim of each shell. So now, you know, they know that this is a one of a kind marking. So right. there's no question. This is the same gun. So now they have a huge breakthrough, but of course, a scary one. And Spetsy appears to be right in his assessment that Florence is dealing with a serial killer. Well, and what I think is so scary is the time that has elapsed. I mean, 74 to 81, that's a long period. And what other crimes might have happened during that that, we, that we're not aware of? Mm-hmm. The police report also noted that the killer had used a particular knife with a special notch in it. Mm-hmm. And Spetsy, uh, throughout his time covering the case, would come to the conclusion that this was probably what he calls a scuba knife. Scuba Steve. Yeah, I, I don't know really what that means, scuba knife. I mean, I'm guessing it has some ridges on one side. Correct. Well, following Spetsy's uh, breakthrough in the case, uh, the excitement of the readers of the newspaper uh, was through the roof. They wanted to learn more about the crimes, more about the monster, and more about any possible leads in the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spetsy wrote many, many articles about the crimes and poss- and possible suspects. During some periods, he was releasing an article a day about the case. Once Spetsy wrote about one suspect uh, who was a priest who frequented prostitutes for the thrill of shaving their pubic hair. What? Yeah. He also wrote about a psychic. No, no, no. What? Yeah. That's, uh, so there was a priest that liked to visit prostitutes. To shave them. To shave their pubic hair. That was his his fetish, and Spetsy thought <laughs> that it was worth uh, telling the community about Jesus. because he thought it was a strange enough fetish that it might carry over to something that the monster was doing. He also wrote hey, about... let me pay you to shave you. No. No, thank you. He also wrote about a psychic who spent a night in the cemetery where one of the victims were buried. Mm-hmm. Uh, the psychic claimed to be sending and receiving messages from the dead. And, Captain, you know was how much... Was he getting those via email? Or <laughs> was, it, well, was that USPS? Stamps.com. Walkie-talkie. Uh... <laughs> You, Captain, you know how much some of the listeners love it when I, or or better, we bring up psychics, right? So I couldn't, yeah. when I came across this portion of the story, I couldn't help myself and had to include it. Well, that's because you're, that's what you're, <laughs> that's your weekend job. Yeah. Next to psychic on the side. Yeah. If you, I mean, call the show. I'll do yeah. a reading. <laughs> the public was now reading about the crimes almost daily and discussing them at bars, around water coolers, and mm-hmm. in many social settings. And they sometimes they talk about this in garages. I heard. Yeah, they and they loved to indulge in the wild speculation. They were getting a lot of wild speculation from Spetsy's articles, and I think that might be why they were so popular. Now, later that year, Mario Spetsy was actually the one who named the killer the Monster of Florence. Yeah, which is such an interesting name because when you think Florence, you think love and romance and all this stuff, and then to toss in, you know, 
such a bad word. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, he had covered other like European uh, serial killers. So he was kind of, he had some insight into this. Mm-hmm. And um, I think he had, uh, you know, kind of saw other nicknames that were given to killers. And this was one that he really, really thought was terrified the community. And I think there's no better name than what he came up with right now. Okay. So following the second set of murders, remember we talked about the peeping Toms, the voyeurs, the, the watchers, Mm -hmm. the the priests that are into shaving. Well, forget, forget about the priest. I think that was just, that was just an odd story that happens to be part of this. Um, the, the police got some information and with this information, they went and they picked up one of these, uh, watchers. Okay. Uh, so do you want to hear about this guy, captain? Yeah. His name was Nick. No, his name was Enzo Spalletti. Old Enzo Spalletti, belly full of spaghetti. Yes. He was born in 1945. He was an Mm. ambulance driver and a peeping Tom, um, (laughs) His, Look, those things don't go together. Well, it's his hobby. Um, he <laughs> he, his car was spotted in the area of the crime scene of the second crime scene. Okay. Uh, now that night he was out with one of his quote unquote nighttime expedition friends. So, like we said, there's there's people that go out and do this by themselves. There's people that go out with their friends and do this. There's a, it's like like finding Bigfoot. It's it's a strange thing to think that there's a whole community of these peeping Tom Watcher people. I'm going to go um, find Bigfoot. I'm going to go watch people touch each other. But the key thing here is, Captain, his friend, when interviewed by police, tells them that he went home. The friend went home around midnight, and Spalletti was still in that area. Right. Spalletti tells his wife and some customers uh, that he had saw a young couple murdered that particular night. Uh, He also mentions some of the mutilations that were done before the information is released to the public. This was information released in the newspapers. Okay. Um, So because of this, this is why he's called into questioning. When questioned about where he was that night, he starts off by making up stories and telling lies It's after about six hours of questioning that he admits to being near the crime scene, but he insists that he went home after his friend left at midnight. Now, the problem that Enzo Spalletti gets into here is that when his wife is interviewed, she she does not agree with him leaving at midnight because she says that he didn't come home that night until around or after 2 a.m. Right. Spalletti is arrested and he's imprisoned. Now, while he is locked up, a strange a stranger calls his wife and calls his brother, and both state that this is not a voice that either one of them had recognized. Right. But basically, his wife is told on the phone from this stranger, tell him to be quiet. He soon will be acquitted and released from jail. A little jail time will serve him well. The idiot. What was he thinking, saying he knew the victims from the newspapers when the newspapers didn't release that information until the next morning? So a strange phone call to get to the wife of our number one suspect. And Eddie Spaghetti, he he might have known this couple if they were known to, you know, park, right? Mm -hmm. You'd think, you know, this guy is going out, he has a partner in crime, um, Peeping Tom partner. Mm-hmm. What do they do? Hold each other's hands and shit while they beat off? Oh, my God. Anyways. No, but it's like, uh, it's weird. So maybe he did know the couple, 
maybe he saw more than he's, you know, leading on the investigators on what he saw. But this, so we got this weird call. So we're, we're, let's just assume this is the murderer. But if this is the murderer that's calling and saying, hey, look, he's going to be acquitted soon if he just shuts up. Right? Right. Then we can assume what I was saying from the beginning, that this this person is stalking these people. And not only is he stalking everybody, he's stalking that whole area. And that, and he knows. He, he has his... He has his hand on on the pulse of the city. All somebody is arrested for my crimes. I will go out of my way to connect with that person's wife, brother, friend, whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we're talking about somebody that's very dedicated to what is happening. Yeah, yeah, and it's just strange in a way that that his wife is getting the phone calls now. Of course, we don't have any proof of these phone calls other than his wife saying it and his brother saying it. Both of them would have a motive to see their husband or brother not imprisoned for four heinous murders. Okay, so the murderer calls and says he's going to be acquitted soon and he's going to be released. So then what happens? Well, he Enzo Spalletti is still locked up in prison. And in October of 1981, this is October 22nd, Uh, just 30 kilometers from Florence, another young couple. This is Stefano. uh, He's 26 years old. And Susanna, who's 24, they went out to dinner that night. And around 10 p.m., uh, they say they're going to go to the movies. Well, they are found dead the next day. Mm -hmm. Stefano was shot four times, um, two of these shots in the heart, and he was stabbed four times post-mortem. Right. According to the investigator's reconstruction of the crime, Susanna it was shot five times, and then like the others, the other crimes, she was pulled from the car and placed about ten feet away from the vehicle. Uh, her female area is mutilated. It was reported that when the two were found, Samantha, uh, sorry, Susanna had a chunk of hair in her hand. Now, it's not clear if this chunk of hair belonged to her boyfriend or if it belonged to the perpetrator of this crime. Mm-hmm. For some strange reason, Captain, and this, these are the things that boggle the brain, but for some strange reason, this bit of evidence has been lost over the years. The um, hair. Yeah, the, the, the hair that was reported to have been found clenched in her hand. Uh, and this part, this next part is unlike any of the other attacks. Okay. The monster, for some reason, pulled the man's body out of the car this time. And it is believed that he did this because the body of the man was, for some reason, obstructing him from removing the girl's body from the vehicle. Okay. Uh, so Stefano's body was found laid out or let's say maybe more appropriately Stefano's body was dumped or dropped by the driver's side door. Mm-hmm. Um, the police reported that the driver's door was jammed for some reason. So this means that the monster carried the dead body of the man from the passenger side of the vehicle, pulling it out from the passenger side and took the time to carry it around the vehicle and then dropping it on the driver's side of the vehicle, which like you said before is different. But the other two crimes, but it makes me wonder if this uh, murderer is trying to like, you know, commit 
a perfect murder in his head and then to create a perfect scene outside. Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? No, and you tapped into something interesting there because one thing that I kept coming across when the description of this particular crime and the reconstruction of this crime comes up is it's often mentioned that there's some kind of psychological factor in there that the the killer might be trying to separate the man from the woman before he does the mutilation to the woman's body. Um, so l- like you said that he might be, he he's created in his, his mind the way he wants this thing to go down or the way that he wants it to look right. when it's found. And he's going to, he's painting a picture for, for people to see. And I think you tapped into something very interesting there, captain. Now the, of course the female victim, her purse was dumped. The contents was dumped on the ground. Uh, police were unable to determine if anything of the female victims was missing from the crime scene. They couldn't tell if she had missing jewelry or anything from her purse. Mm-hmm. Um, they did find some evidence. You know, we're talking about a killer that so far has left very little evidence other than the shell casings at the crime scene. They found a size 11 shoe print uh, near the vehicle. Um, also, not far from the vehicle. They found, and this this is going to sound strange, um, they found a pyramid-shaped black basalt stone uh, is found near that vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what is one of these things that uh, you're talking about? Okay, so basically it's a picture like a, a, like a rock, you know, mm-hmm. that maybe somebody would try to, to sculpt or shape into some kind of form. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a dark, uh, bl- almost black or black um, stone that someone has shaped into almost a pyramid type shape. Okay. Uh, I've seen pictures of this one. It appears to be a, a little larger than two fists put together. Um, so pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that, that we will come back to. Uh, but this, this strange object is found and noted as evidence in this particular crime. Now, after this, the murders take place, there's another, strange phone call situation. Uh, This is before the bodies were actually found. Someone called Susanna's mother. Now, the strange thing here is um, I believe that that, that Suzanne, she, you know, she lived, I know she lived with her mother, but the thing is, I believe that they had recently moved that, that they were living with her, her aunt Mm -hmm. uh, pretty recently. And once they had moved, the number was not listed at the time of Suzanne's death. Um, she did not, her mother did not recognize the voice of the caller. Um, she said that, that the caller said that they had important information about Suzanne that they needed to give to Suzanne's mom. Right. Then the call was disconnected for some reason. Maybe the caller hung up, but regardless, it was disconnected. And, there was no further communication regarding whatever important information this caller had to give to Suzanne's mother. Now, keep in mind, like we said at the top of this uh, crime, that Enzo Spalletti is still behind bars during this whole attack. Mm-hmm. And due to the attack matching that exactly of the monster. Not exactly, but. Well, very close. We have the body, we have the male's body pulled from the vehicle. However, we have the same gun used mm-hmm. and the same ammunition used in this particular crime. So Enzo Spalletti cannot be 
the perpetrator of this crime and most likely cannot be the monster himself. Yeah, possibly. There's some other theories about that. Um, there was a lead in this case. Um, there was, a, you know, the phone call. We discussed that. Um, but there was also a situation where Susanna had told her mother that she believed she was being followed. Again, we're hearing the same thing time and time again, Captain, that someone was following her in a car uh, when she was out walking and driving. Right. She didn't give a description of the vehicle to her mother, um, and she didn't say if it, in fact, was more than one vehicle. It could have been possibly two vehicles. But again, we're seeing a vague description of somebody watching or somebody being feeling though that they're being followed before they end up being murdered. Yeah, which goes to my original thought of, you know, possibly somebody stalking stalking their victims. We have so much more to get to regarding the monster of Florence, and this case is a huge one. So we have a jam-packed day for you tomorrow. We also want to thank all of you for joining us in the garage today. That's right, you. I'm talking to you. Thank you for joining you. us in the garage. Not we, you. We hope you're having a fantastic day or a fantastic evening. Regardless, we'll see you right back here tomorrow in the garage. Until then, please be good, be kind, and don't litter. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.